0: Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM.
1: Good morning. Welcome to the Woodford Show. Beautiful day here in Kamloops. Blue sky. Uh, none of the warmth of the sunshine, though. It is cold out there. Uh, we got an exciting show for you. A little bit later, we're going to be talking mining safety and oversight with this province's mining minister, Michelle Mongal. We're also going to recap last night's big win by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. In the Burnaby South by-election with Kelvin Golly, and we'll do our weekly chat about U.S. and Canadian political issues of note with TRU's Jeffrey Myers. But first off, uh, we have Dr. Robert Hanlon in studio, who is an assistant professor of international relations and Asian politics, co-author of Freedom from Fear, Freedom from Want, and Introduction to Human Security. By the way, that book, uh, my understanding, has the United Nations has added it to its list of important human security publications. Uh, good morning and welcome, Robert. How are you? Good morning. So, uh, first off, that's a big accolade on the UN front. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book, "Freedom from Fear, Freedom from Want." What is human security, and and why did you tackle this particular topic?
2: Well, my co-author and I, Kenneth Christie, who's a professor at Royal Roads Uni- University, we saw this as, a, as an opportunity to kind of look at some of the gaps, some of the blind spots in traditional security studies. So we wanted to look at it from a people to people kind of interrelation of what's happening on the ground, especially in the developing world. Um, so when we refer to human security, we're really referring to how marginalized and vulnerable populations in underdeveloped countries uh, are, are, are are striving or not striving. And so we're very concerned in this book about how um, the international community uh, is impacted by these vulnerabilities in other parts of the world, how it interconnects with us, even here in, in Kamloops and in Canada. Uh, so we were really looking at a, a theme of, of people on the ground uh, and the two kind of, if we say pillars of human security are considering this theme called protection, so protection of vulnerable and marginalized population, and empowerment, so empowering people uh, to kind of take hold of their own livelihoods. So, you and I were talking off the air, but and I get the overall concept,
1: but you, we were discussing how incredibly difficult that is. I think it's important to identify some of those things, but, and I'll use the example of Syria, which is what you and I were chatting about. I mean, there is a region that's rocked with six or seven years of some of the most bloody conflict we've ever seen. It sparked probably the world's largest immigration problem. It's refugees, and by the millions, 7 to 12 million, uh, fled violence and death looking for safety and security. So it's one thing to go in there, okay, we have a problem, here's here's why there's some instability. It's a whole other thing to figure out how to solve it, because as you mentioned, we had the refugee crisis unfolding across the world. That probably led to some degrees uh, the rise in populism, uh, and it was felt everywhere across the planet. So how do you how do you go in and assess something like that, and then and then conversely, how difficult is it to complete the circle and then say, okay, we need to find
2: stability in a place like Syria, which is far easier said than done. Right, yeah, you know, and that whole region of Middle East, North Africa has just been up in upheaval, including yeah. Libya and other parts, and we've seen, you know, Iraq fall apart and now Yemen. Um, you know, the thing is, when we're considering from human security perspective, we have the capacity to see these things coming. We have early warning mechanisms within our international organizations that can as a member too, so for example the United Nations. But the thing is is there is been a lack of kind of political will in addressing a lot of these concerns, even though we would see it coming in the long term. And so, you know, one of the the messages that we're trying to get across here in this text and, and one of the reasons why it was put on as a primer kind of base reading by the UN uh, Trust in Human Security is because if the, the 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 magnitude of the problem but also the need the call on uh... for for governments and and to have a type of empathy for people in these parts of the world because this stuff does eventually show up at our doorstep whether we like it or not and so you know when we saw the collapse in syria there is a lot of discussion about what to do and it becomes very difficult but you know at the end of the day you need uh, political will to stand in in support and, and, and solidarity with those that are impacted on the ground Um, If you don't have that, and and you kind of let these things play out and just say, well, they're not our problem, they're a local problem, you know, you can only push that for so long. And as you see, when people are threatened with violence and and oppression, well, they vote with their feet. They get up and leave, and they show up at your doorstep. And so it's something that, you know, whether we like it or not, it does happen.
1: Yeah.
2: How... is, is political will the only way I know in your book
1: you talk about sort of governments but that's a top down a minute ago you talked about empowering people I mean again just to kind of stay on the Syria topic as an example we had Barack Obama on one end of the political spectrum essentially ignored the problem did nothing uh, and then you've got Donald Trump on the other end of the political spectrum uh, who's still doing nothing but is using it as political leverage to get what he wants from a sort of power and, and fueling his base uh, with immigration and fears and all that kind of stuff so I mean all of that that uh, does nothing for the situation itself, and especially for the people who are suffering. So, is how do people empower themselves? I mean, if, if the government's not going to do it, if the world powers aren't going to do it, how do you how do you figure it out? Right,
2: and see, Syria is a, is, is kind of this case, this kind of real. What we might call a wicked problem, but one that uh, we could have seen and we did see coming from years ago, if those that were writing about it and analyzing it, and you know it gets to the point where it does become too late, and you have over you know a thousand different combatant militia groups on the ground fighting each other, and you know who's who and who's being armed by by who, which which great power. Right. It's extremely complex. But if you were to take a step back, and this is what we're calling, if you look at how the people in Syria had been treated for the past thirty four years and you know it's quite easy and convenient to say well you know Syria is another place that's their 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 issues on the ground but what we're saying is solidarity and in, 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 in trying to work with you know and civil society groups with governments with the international community saying that you know you need to build up the economic capacity you need to build up uh, the political rights especially of marginalized groups in places like this that are uh, have been been vulnerable and so you know people will only be pushed in the corners for so long and when they do rise up up and they claim these rights that they've been denied. You know, history shows it's always a violent response. Um, moving off of Syria, how do you identify? I mean, uh, there's climate change,
1: there's scarcity of resources, there is. Uh, um, violent regimes. Um, there's all sorts of things out there that are creating instability. We're lucky to live in a country where we're reasonably stable. Uh, you know, we, we have uh, a system around us we can fall back on, but for a large portion of the world, for a whole host of reasons, that's simply not the truth. So, I mean, there's a lot to bite into there, but how do you go
2: in and determine, okay, this is causing instability, this is causing instability? Because there's a lot of stuff boiling away out there. Right, and so in this in this book, we're very concerned... And- and again, what we've been, my co-author and I have been writing about for the past 15 years, is the idea of, of uh, economic empowerment, this freedom of, of of from from want, if we will, so that, that people have the capacity to stay where they they are in the in the world. They don't want to move. They're not, you know, if you talk to refugees or asylum seekers, you know, but that's supposed to be a temporary fix. You know, most asylum seekers, a vast majority of them, don't want to leave their homes. They're forced out of them. And if you were to give them an opportunity, if they're there was economic opportunity, if there was capacity to go back, you know, often they will. And so, you know, one of the things that we look at is this interconnectedness of these things. So things like environment climate change uh, infectious disease for example you know these things are very difficult to to contain in borders so you know building up economic prosperity and capacity and 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 political rights in these parts of the world that are underdeveloped uh, we argue will will we'll see a, a minimization of those threats of those risks the ability to create more st- stability in in unstable in these gray zone great you new know, borderlands that are so often ungoverned or, or have very weak governance, you know, will eventually lead uh, to more stability and will improve the health capacity, environmental capacity of these regions. So, you know, all this stuff is interconnected is what we're trying to to make a case for. Uh,
1: Last word to you. I mean, obviously we're living in a world that is in interesting times. The old Chinese curse or proverb. (laughs) May you live in interesting (laughs) times. Uh, Do you see a world in which we're going to continue to get worse on the instability front? Do you see uh, you know, and thanks probably, maybe your book that we're going to get our heads wrapped around the issues and as a people are going to tackle some of this stuff. I mean, do you
2: see it getting worse? Do you see it getting better? What's your assessment? I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. You know, we've seen 20 years of the, the positives of globalization, and I think just recently we're seeing some of the negatives, some of the the stuff that we don't like, some of the social media backlash, some of the, you know, this, this you know, what is, what is how are we interconnected with, with through uh, not only wealth and prosperity, but again, crime and, 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 and violent politics. So, you know, I, I, do see kind of a balancing eventually, but it is uh, you know, one thing is, is, is beneficial is, is, is that, you know, we're listening to people and even the, the groups that are, you might not disagree, you might disagree with that are on the ground, you know, we still, they still have a voice and, and so we're never been more interconnected and, and never had a better opportunity and time to listen to those that we disagree with and find ways to, to kind of find common ground with one another. Excellently said, uh, Doctor. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Great, happy to be here. Thank you very
1: much. That's Doctor Robert Hanlon, assistant professor of international relations and Asian politics at TRU, co-author of "Freedom from Fear," "Freedom from Wands," and "Introduction to Human Security." A quick break in the Woodford Show. We'll talk to Energy and Mines Minister Michelle Mangal next.
0: Local news now. Radio NL six ten a.m. and radionl.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on
1: RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome to BC's Energy and Mines Minister, Michelle Mongal. Good morning, Michelle. How are you?
3: Good morning. Good, thank you.
1: Well, uh, Mining Day in BC yesterday, but uh, your uh, your ministry is launching a new initiative, essentially two new initiatives on the mining front, uh, channeling some twenty million dollars into uh, mining mining safety and security and things like that. Uh, tell me, tell me about some of these changes. What are you doing on the mining front? So we
3: are putting twenty million dollars uh, from this budget into the ministry, and it's actually address some of the recommendations coming from our mining jobs task force that we launched a year ago, but it also addresses some of the recommendations that the Auditor General pointed out that government needed to do following the Mount Polley disaster. So what we're doing is uh, we're adding 65 new people to the ministry and we're creating, we're dividing off two functions as was re- recommended. So permitting and competitiveness and making sure that B.C. is a competitive jurisdiction globally to attract mining investment is now one division. And then on the health, safety, and enforcement, so enforcing the, the rules that those permits lay out for companies, that's now independent of the permitting of the competitiveness. Their sole focus is to make sure that B.C.'s mines are healthy, they are safe workplaces, and that we are protecting the environment.
1: Among that, I note uh, you're adding a number of mining inspectors. Uh, what will that accomplish, and, and do you know how many yet?
3: More boots on the ground means better work for British Columbians. So we are doubling that new division of health, safety, and enforcement. Uh, we're adding 43 new people to that division. And again, that's exactly what the Auditor General said uh was part of the problem that caused Mount Poli, and therefore part of the solution to prevent anything like that happening in the future. Again, is that you just you need more boots on the ground. You need people doing the work necessary.
1: In the aftermath of Mount Poli, there was uh, there was some sense of outrage bubbling in, in some parts of the province uh, over, I, I guess, a perception out there that the, that the company got away with something. I mean, they remediated the area, uh, etc. But I guess people felt like they didn't really, you know pay for, for, for what happened in, in some sort of justice sense. Is, is that sort of part of this to kind of uh, go out there and you said, you know, enforce the rules, uh, enforce mining inspection? Is that to make sure that the, the groups out there are doing what they're supposed to be doing and nothing is slipping by?
3: Well, in terms of Mount Polley, that's still under investigation under the federal government, and we've been actively involved in that investigation. And uh, so, so the federal government is looking into that that issue. But now, to prevention is always worth a pound of cure. We want to prevent these types of things from happening in the future, and that's exactly why we need a, a unit of people who are out there doing the enforcement, making sure that our work sites are healthy, that they're safe, making sure that uh, we're protecting our environment. And, and it, it just takes people power to make sure that that's, uh, that's happening. And so we are uh, rolling this new division out right across the province, and that's going to be better for communities.
1: On the competitiveness side, uh, Minister, uh, a lot of talk, uh, I guess more on the pipeline front at the moment, but a lot of talk about the trouble and the regulatory burden in getting natural resource projects off the ground. Uh, yeah, I'm sure if you talk to Tosico, they have some frustrations with some of the new mines that they've tried to get started. Uh, how, do we, how do we accomplish both tasks of making sure this province is competitive, making sure we have new mines and all that comes with that, but also making sure the environment is safe and all of the stakeholders around a mine are happy and satisfied?
3: Well, you've just hit on a really critical point. Under the previous Liberal government, there's a real backlog in terms of permitting for our mining sector and that's because there was too few people doing too much work and having too many responsibilities and we just weren't able to do make sure that the services that everybody counts on, the people who work in the mining sector, the people who invest in the mining sector, their services that they need to to do their jobs well just weren't there. We've now changed that and so we have a division focused on permitting relieving that black log getting things done in a timely manner and making sure that we are competitive jurisdiction around the world to attract that mining investment. This is a foundational industry for British Columbia. It employs 30,000 people, so we owe it to them to make sure it's a strong industry and it continues to produce that steel-making coal for wind turbines, the copper, the gold that goes into electric cars, into our iPhones, solar panels. Metals are important for decarbonizing our economy overall and we have a great jurisdiction to be producing that for the world.
1: Can you quantify the backlog just out of
3: curiosity? How bad was it? I don't have a number right for you at this moment but uh, it was pretty significant it was one of the top things that I kept hearing from industry is that uh, uh, permitting for example uh, one person was telling me yesterday during mining day that uh, he had a permit that was just sitting in a file folder for six months before anybody even looked at it So that's you know time is money, Uh, and in industry, when we want to make sure that we're creating good family-supporting jobs, uh, we have to make sure that we're clearing these uh, backlogs out and making sure that uh, the eyes are looking at these permits thoroughly.
1: And how do you deal with the First Nations component, Michelle? I mean, uh, uh, if you look at Transbound, there's some, some for and against there. If you look at the Tosico mines example uh, near Williams Lake, uh, there was just a massive amount of opposition from area First Nations and unceded land and that kind of thing. How, how, do you, how do you account for that? How do you work with them to make sure mines are getting in the ground?
3: Well, we have to be working in partnership with Indigenous communities and Indigenous Nations, and that's part of reconciliation. And reconciliation is uh, economic revenue sharing, but it's also making sure that First Nations are involved, that they're getting the benefits of the jobs and uh, the training that goes along with these projects, but they also, that these projects are aligned with their vision for the land. And so we have to be working in partnership with First Nations, and we're doing that through our environmental assessment process, for example, and uh, revamping that process.
1: Going forward, how do you measure efficiency and competitiveness? I mean, it's one thing to, to say those things, but uh, over a period of, I don't know, two, three, four, five years, how do you look and say, okay, this is working, uh, this is going well, or you know what, this is, this is not working as well as we'd like, we need to make some tweaks and changes?
3: It's all about where those investment dollars are go- are landing at the end of the day. Are they landing here in British Columbia? Is this a desirable jurisdiction for those, invest- those international investment dollars? Uh, the ore is in the ground, but the money can fly all over the planet. And so we want to make sure that uh, it's coming here so that it's building those mines, it's building the exploration industry, and we're creating those family-supporting jobs, like I said, it- Mining are some of the best-paying jobs in the province, and it's great opportunity, especially for rural communities. I mean, coming from uh, the Kootenays, where we do a lot of mining, uh, this has been a really important sector for our province and, and for all over uh, rural communities.
1: I guess my last question is with uh, what we learned here in Kamloops, the KGMHX uh, proposal, which was ultimately defeated. But there was an outwelling of opposition based on, uh, not just from First Nations, which were also opposed, but also from a lot of people in Kamloops who thought uh, this mine was too close to the city centre, created all sorts of problems, potentially dust, that kind of thing. Uh, what's your sense as energy and Mines Minister, about sort of distances between these projects and urban populated areas? Should Should they be a certain distance away in your mind or no?
3: Well, this is all part of the environmental assessment process. And uh, in that process under our government, uh, First Nations, local First Nations, uh, were able to have their say and be heard. But so is the community at large as well. And, And that's exactly why these processes exist.
1: Perfect. Michelle, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. That was BC's Energy and Mines Minister Michelle Mangal talking about some changes to mining within her ministry. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll dive back into last night's Burnaby South federal by-election. A big win for Jugmeet Singh.
0: What does it mean? Kelvin Gulley joins us next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 6, 10 a.m. and RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Last night, uh, one of three federal by-elections, Burnaby South, the big one everyone was keeping an eye on, with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, running there looking for a seat in the House of Commons, and he cruised to a win. Uh, Nothing even close to him on that front uh, to talk about uh, and to have him on back-to-back, as a matter of fact. Uh, Joining us again, Burnaby Now reporter Calvin Gawley. Good morning, Calvin. How are you? Good morning, how are you? Your first appearance was so nice, we had to have you on twice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, man, uh, almost 3,000 vote difference between uh, Richard Lee and uh, Jugmeet Singh last night. Uh, first off, uh, surprised that he just, you know, there was, there was no looking back from the first poll to the last. Uh, Jugmeet Singh had this thing in the bag from the get-go. Uh, surprising to you or no?
4: Um, you know, it wasn't a huge surprise. I mean, it was much closer in 2015, um, where the NDP beat the Liberals by you know 500 something votes. But you know, this time around, there was just so many factors, I guess, in in Singh's favor. I mean, being a party leader, that sort of helps him out a little bit. Um, you know, the Liberals uh, are you know the governing party, which you know, generally hurts you in, the, in, the, in a by-election, and also facing this SNC-Levelin scandal. Um, you know, the Green Party didn't run a candidate, and you, you can imagine uh, you know, many of their supporters would decide to go for, for Mr. Singh instead. So I think there's was, there was just so many factors that sort of led to, to Singh uh, having a relatively easy night after all.
1: What do you think of the turnout? I mean, uh, by-elections are always sort of interesting animals. They tend to be a little lower than most, but 29% turnout, roughly.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it, if it was a general, you'd certainly be, uh, you know, maybe freaking out a little bit that you know there's such low turnout. But if you look, uh, if you compare it to the other two yesterday, it was it was quite a bit higher than the other two by elections. So uh, I don't know how how by elections average. I know they're definitely lower turnout uh, than generals. Uh, so you know, people were busy, uh, maybe not so aware or uh, n- not too, uh, maybe as as willing to take time off work or something like that to to make their way to the polls.
1: What was the feeling like at NDP headquarters and up to Mr. Singh uh, coming on stage and uh, having a a bit, I'm sure it was a bit of a party atmosphere, Uh, what was the feeling like and and what did he have to say once he got on stage to, to take the win?
4: yeah I mean he, he, like any you know victory speech he he thanked his volunteers and his supporters and his family and, 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 and you know he, he said that this shows that you know the people of Burnaby South are, are behind uh, him and, and his party's vision um, you know. but at one point he, he asked his supporters um, you know uh, he thanked them for what was a, a bit of a slog of a, of a by-election but he asked them if they had anything left in the tank because you know that general election is only 8 months away
1: yeah and I think that's kind of key here because we are so close uh, I believe Richard Lee's already re-upped uh, but I would assume, and it sounds like Mr. Singh's aware of this, that uh, that if you're smart, you sort of maintain a soft campaign because uh, before long you're going to be right back in the thick of a fall federal election
4: Yeah and uh, it, it's it, you know, and I, I asked him last night you know you know, being the local reporter, you know our focus is always you know our community and 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 you know how how the the bigger picture of politics affects us here. So you know, I asked him. You know, over the next eight months, you're you've got this big task of of trying to you know re-energize your party, try to. You know, make some gains in the polls, you know, lots of fundraising to do that's lagging behind. Um, so that's a big job on your plate. But at the same time, you know, the people of Burnaby South are looking for representation um, for their local uh, issues uh, in Ottawa. And, he, you know, he uh, he said he can do both, but I guess only time will
1: tell. He also faced, uh, and you touched on it a little bit there, but I mean, the NDP federally uh, over the last year or two has been in something of a quagmire. They've got a lot of people that are saying no thanks to running again. I mean, we're around 25 to 30 MPs right now who are headed for the exit door. Uh, Mr. Singh has found himself in trouble in a number of fronts. Uh, last night may have been a nice little boost, and he's going to get the House of Commons. He's going to get a seat. He's going to get some personal limelight out of it. But he does have a fairly um, steep hill to climb, and not much time to do it in to get his party turned around and headed in the right direction uh i i hear that he he was faced with some of those questions last night uh, i'm sure some of them weren't as welcome as he would like to have considering the occasion but um you know what what kind of questions did he face and what was his response to some of those questions about his challenges
4: yeah i mean and, and he's you know he's he's been he's been answering the same questions during the by-election campaign as well and you know he's he's Painting a rosy picture, and he has acknowledged to some degree, you know, the challenges that his that his party faces right now, and, and and you know the tough road ahead. But you know, it seems he he and and many of the party members are confident that you know they can really only go up from here, kind of thing. Um, you know, I think getting him in the house was maybe the first big step in, in what they hope is, is some sort of comeback here. Um, he, he said last night, and he said it in French, so I, I didn't get it all of it, but, you know, he's, he's going to be in Quebec next week and he's going to present sort of the NDP's plan specifically for Quebec because they've lost so much support, um, you know, in that province, especially since they won so big in 2011. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he, he seems confident that he can turn this thing around, um, but it's, it's certainly a big task.
1: Immigration for the Federal Conservative Party and for uh, Laura Lynn Thompson of the People's Party was, as you and I talked about yesterday, was one of the sort of hinge pins of their campaign. Um... What do you sort of read into the vote split there? I mean, Jay Shin, 22.5% of the vote for the Conservatives. Uh, that was good enough for third place. Laura Lynn Thompson had 10% of the vote. And, and uh, by far, uh, among the three by-elections, as far as the People's Party was concerned, uh, her sort of voting takeaway was, was much higher than the other two candidates in the other two ridings. And there seemed to be some reaction after the fact, going, wow, look at that, 10 11% of the vote for the People's Party, that's crazy. What was your sort of takeaway there?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, Laurelyn Thompson. She uh, she she enters a, energized a, a certain portion of of the community. Um, you know, she she mentioned several times the murder of of Marissa Shen, which was uh, a teen who was murdered here in in, in 2017. Uh, the man that has been accused of that murder um, uh, was a Syrian refugee, and and she sort of used that as 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 a reason for for why we need you know more stringent. Um, immigration screening, and uh, I think those numbers show that you know that 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 message connected to a certain degree. I asked um, you know the mayor of Burnaby last night, Mike Hurley, about why he thought you know she was able to get so much support, and he he thinks you know she maybe took advantage of what he called um, fear and misunderstanding in the community, and and he said that you know he expects it to be more of a one-time thing and and not something that's going to be. Uh, maybe more long-lasting as, as far as, uh, you know, those ideas.
1: Yeah, and potentially he may be right. We'll have to see. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to catch up with Jay Shin or, or, or anybody over at the Conservative side. Was there a sense that they felt that uh, the People's Party, um, you know, leached some votes away from them? I will say that by qualifying and saying that if, if, in fact, the entire People's Party voting spectrum went to the Conservatives, that still would only be good enough for second place and still well behind Mr. Singh. But was there a sense there that there was some vote split or no?
4: Um, yeah, I've, I haven't had a, the chance to, to speak to Mr. Shin yet since uh, the, the results came in. Uh, you know, he—I uh, asked him that. You know, during the campaign, though, you know, are you, are you concerned about losing support to, to that side? And uh, you know, uh, I think they are. Um, I, I, the, the degree to which they, they might admit to it is, is, you know, a different thing. But you know, and I think it puts the, the Conservatives, you know, in a tough spot going into October because if they're sort of trying to hold off. You know, support on the right side of their party and, and, and sort of keep uh, that support, they may be less likely to, to take support away from the Liberals, uh, which, you know, Mr. Trudeau is probably uh,
1: pretty happy about. So, what happens now, Kelvin? I mean, obviously, we have the fall federal election, as we talked about a minute ago. I, I think that there should be some sense from, from candidates who really have their heads in the game. They've got to just kind of keep on fighting right through and not really stop campaigning. But uh, what happens in Burnaby South now?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the four main party candidates have all said that they're going to they're going to run again um, in come October. Um, so we're going to we're going to see a reset um, not too long from now. Um, but you know, that's going to be next time we vote. You know, there's going to be it's going to be after a whole national campaign, and there's going to be all these different you know narratives and, and 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 trends this way and that way across the whole country. There's going to be you know uh, debates between the leaders. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, how much focus is actually remains on that riding? Um, you know, as I said, I, I asked Singh. You know, how are you going to split your time? You know, between leading a federal party and, and you know trying to become prime minister, while also you know trying to represent this community. Um, and I expect you know some of his his opponents to to try to maybe take advantage of that and try to say to Bernie B. South, oh, this guy's too too worried about you know fundraising in Quebec uh, or you know doing this or that in Saskatchewan when when you know we're concerned about you know, uh, improving lives right here in this community. So uh, it'll be a similar campaign come October, but I, I expect it might just be even that much more uh, heated and that much more interesting.
1: Yeah, but Singh also as a party leader is going to have um, some spotlight and some level of media exposure that the other candidates simply won't be able to get no matter how much money they buy. So that has both pros and cons to it. Uh, last question to you. Uh, there was no green candidate uh, in this race. Did, would that alter anything sort of in the, in the bottom two three parties perspective or no?
4: I don't know. I, uh, you know, in, in, in 2015, I think they only pulled about 3% of the vote in this riding. Um, you know, as we know, provincially, you know, the, the, the Green Party has seen, you know, a sort of a, a rise in its fortunes. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what Elizabeth May is able to do. And, and I mean, who knows? I don't know if she'll run a, a candidate come October here. She, I, she does, certainly didn't uh, here, but uh, I think the Green Party uh, might make more of an inca- impact uh, nationally come, come October than we've seen before.
1: Well, it was an exciting night nonetheless. Must have been fun to get down there and cover it. Calvin, appreciate the time. All right, thanks a lot. That's Calvin Golly. He's a reporter with Burnaby Now. Uh, also, a really great follow on Twitter if you're so inclined, uh, at Calvin Golly. Uh, and uh, talking about Jugmeet Singh's pretty big win last night in Burnaby South. He now has himself a seat in the House of Commons. Quick break on the Woodford Show. We'll finish up talking about uh, Canadian American political stories of note with our weekly chat with Jeffrey Myers.
0: Local news now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning and welcome. Always a pleasure to be joined by uh, Jeffrey Myers, a lawyer and lecturer up at Thompson University. Had about a week off and got a backlog of stuff to deal with. How are you, Jeff?
5: I'm good, Shane. Good
1: to be on. Yeah, good to hear your voice again. Uh, so let's start off with the SNC-Lavalin stuff, which is a, a controversy that's uh, blown up in the in the Liberals and, and to some degree the Prime Minister's face here. Uh, one of the key questions is a legal one with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould um, basically having information that people want, but yet she has, uh, uh, you know, solicitor-client privilege over what some of that information might be. I note that she may appear before the Justice Committee and the Prime Minister is saying as of about half an hour Ago that there are some things she can talk about to clear the air that don't violate that confidentiality. Uh, what are you noticing as you watch this thing kind of unfold?
5: What I'm noticing, you know, immediately is again, as I've said, that the new the new um, justice minister that followed um, after um, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, demotion, if you will, to the Department of Veterans Affairs, and then her subsequent resignation from cabinet is David Lemetti, who I mentioned to you in the past was a, a professor uh, when I was a student at McGill Law School. It, what and what he is. Sort of initially was saying um was that you know there was not much to see here move along uh, and then it seems to be over the last few days he's softened his approach. As and we want it we're looking for a way to make a ms raybold available to the oversight committee to tell her side of the story a suggestion but the problem of course the stumbling block is it would seem to be again we're filling in the blanks here about attorney-client privilege right and that today There's legal experts which are, I think, testifying right now before the committee on the scope of um, what's called the Shaw Cross Doctrine and on the question of attorney-client privilege as to whether or not there's an attorney-client privilege issue here, and if there is, um, what it would take for the government to waive it and allow Ms. Raybould to go ahead, and also the question of whether or not, um, even if the allegations that Ms. Raybould are making are taken on their face to be true, or the allegations, I should say, that the Globe Mail are reporting um, are taken to be true whether in fact those would be sufficient to rise to the level of, of wrongdoing and that revolves around whether or not this is the type of interference um, which again the law calls it the Shawcross Doctrine. The Shawcross Doctrine is named after a British jurist who was a Minister of Justice in the Labour government after the war and one of the prosecutors on the Nuremberg Tribunal and he's famously known for coming up with with the, the Shawcross uh, Doctrine his name is Sir Harley Shawcross and, and what he says is he says that the, the that it is the duty of the Attorney General, this is the exact word of the Shawcross uh, Doctrine, deciding whether or not to authorize prosecution to acquaint himself, and he probably should have said herself, with all the relevant facts, including, for instance, the effect which the prosecution, successful or unsuccessful as the case may be, would have upon public morale and order and with any other considerations affecting um, public policy. And he goes on, he says, in order to... In order so to inform himself he may although do i do not think he is obliged to consult with any of his colleagues in the government and indeed as lord simon once said he would in some cases be a fool if he did not uh, on the other hand the assistance of the colleagues is confined to informing him of particular considerations which might affect his own decisions and does not consist and must not consist in telling him what the decision ought to be right the responsibility for the eventual decision the shawcross doctrine goes on rests with the attorney general and he is not not to be put, and is not put under pressure by his colleagues in this matter. So, what's coming out in some of the the public statements that you've made, particularly noteworthy over the last week, is from the chief of the the, the Privy Council Clerk, Michael Wernick, who's the highest civil servant in Canada. Um, who's saying, you know, there, there's. Uh, he doesn't believe that there's an issue um, here that that line has been crossed. Clearly the government wants to make that case, and there's some speculation, and I think based on the Globe and Mail reporting, Miss Wilson-Raybould is going to say that that line, that shaw cross line was stepped over where there was a kind of attempt to influence or direct her in some particular um, way rather than just enlighten her on the potential downsides of the prosecution. I note also specifically, uh, your, your listeners will know that the, the deferred prosecution The possibility of a deferred prosecution, which means basically taking a prosecution out of the criminal system and, and allowing fees and admission of guilt or penalties and admission of guilt rather than effectively preventing... SNC-Lavalin from, you know, bidding for government contracts for 10 years in Canada, which would bankrupt it. That was a product of an extended lobbying effort by uh, SNC-Lavalin, and it was part of an omnibus budget bill, so Canadians didn't really get a chance to scrutinize it, nor was it particularly well debated in Parliament. But it's not supposed to be used, even within the context of that, the new deferred prosecution arrangements for corporations. It's not meant or designed to be a factor where you would, to avoid job loss, for example. So when you talk about public policy, that doesn't normally just mean, oh, They're too big to fail, in the words we use in the U.S., right? The idea is that there has to be other legitimate considerations and that ultimately that decision is left uh, at the discretion of the prosecutor. And in this case, what it looks like... Uh, is that you know SNC-Lavalin a major employer in Quebec was too big to fail and that they and that the government knew that based on the lobbying of SNC-Lavalin and the fact and the importance of them as a corporate donor and the importance of them as an employer in Quebec that were they to allow the prosecution to go ahead without having this deferred prosecution arrangement, that it would, it would devastate SNC-Lavalin and have a huge knock-on effect on the Canadian economy, and the uh, government wanted to move precipitously to avoid that, and now, of course, what's being set up is it's turning out to be a kind of Western Canada uh, versus Quebec situation, and that's never a good look for our country.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, let's uh, turn our attention south of the line. Some interesting stuff's happened on that front. Um, number one, we're hearing again Mr. Mueller may be in the final stages of his report. And to his credit, we have no idea. He's kept a pretty airtight investigation over that. But uh, as we near sort of what might be the end strokes, all sorts of, um, I don't want to, I guess refer to as framing by the president and, and those loyal to him about what it might be in this report is, is already occurring. Uh, I know the Democrats, Mr. Mr. Adam Schiff in particular is saying they're going to pull out all the stops to make sure this report's public, including uh, possibly uh, calling Mr. Mueller to testify or issuing a subpoena on the report itself. Your thoughts on that?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, so basically the, the terms of the special counsel's investigation was that he would do he would draw up a report, and that report would be an investigation, broadly speaking, of any kind of collusion, to use the non-legal kind of um, descriptive term, between um, the United States, particularly between Russia, between the Trump campaign uh, and, uh, and Russia in the run-up to the 2016 election, and that he would report back to the attorney general, okay? And so the reason that there's, and, and that's all it said, It doesn't say the Attorney General has to release that report to the public. It doesn't say that Congress has a right to to scrutinize that report. So there's all kinds of nervousness around whether or not the Attorney General will, in fact, release the report uh, once he receives it. There's speculation that that report is soon to be coming, and one of the reasons there's speculation for that is because there was the idea was that Mr. Mueller likely wouldn't have issued the report in the context of the Whitaker um, interim attorney general uh, because he wasn't, you know, Senate confirmed and it was clear that William Barr was coming down the pike to be a more permanent attorney general. It's also known that um, Mr. Mueller has worked with and has a personal uh, relationship with Mr. Uh, So I think there might be a greater degree of comfort, uh, perhaps, and that's why people are speculating that that report is more likely to come now. It's also been a reasonable amount of time. Um, So I think we can expect it sooner rather than later. No one knows the exact framing, and it may well come out this week. It may come out next week, and it may still be just rumors and speculation and be several more weeks or months. What we're really looking ahead to now is we're looking at a situation, and I think one of the things, again, reading the tea leaves, you know, thinking about what's happening, inferring from the facts, um, you know, is Mr. Mueller? Did he? Is he perhaps one of the reasons he might have been might have been waiting? If he was waiting, was to wait until now? There's a Senate, a Democrat-controlled Congress, right, so they can exercise this oversight. So, if there is any funny business, perhaps he's more trusting that there won't be because he he has a professional relationship with Mr. Barr. But even if there is, all of a sudden, Congress has these ability, this greater oversight capacity, right? Because now, Mr. Schiff and his committee aren't minority. Um, they're in the majority, and so that they can do things like try to subpoena or call witnesses, even Mr. Mueller himself, to come before Congress and speak to it. And they've made signals, all the congressional leadership has made signals, that they're not going to rest until... um, a, you know, anything other than redactions for the purposes of, like, national security interests or sources to protect sources would be inappropriate, and that the public has the right to know And there's a strong public interest here. So it will be a big fight um, either way. I think it's really, again, it's 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 a choose-your-own-adventure kind of situation, very hard to predict. I mean, one possibility, of course, is that the Mueller report is going to make all kinds of findings of fact about things that happened, but it's not going to recommend, um, you know, it's not It may or may not say that uh, Mr. Trump's uh, actions rise to the level of criminal uh, wrongdoing. Uh, We don't know what it's going to say, and and we don't know, um, know if it's going to be given the light of day. We know there'll be a fight to bring it into the light of day, and there is significant subpoena power. There'll be significant public pressure. But if this report... Concludes that you know there's no direct link between Mr. Trump and the interference between the R- Russia and the election. That doesn't necessarily mean that Americans aren't entitled, shouldn't be able to scrutinize the record of what happened and make judgments around whether or not they, um, whether or not he has. Um, reach the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors in a political sense, which is all that's required by the Constitution for impeachment and a trial uh, in the Senate.
1: FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe is uh, making some, some waves recently. Of course, he's got a book that's out, so that uh, has to be taken into consideration but uh, he is uh, he is confirming the FBI launched a counterintelligence investigation into mr Trump uh, concerns over his ties to Russia uh, including and up to uh, considering whether or not they could invoke the 25th amendment to possibly mm-hmm. remove him thoughts on that
5: well, that information has been out for a while, um, and so it's clear that, you know, in the time before the Mueller investigation even began, after the firing of James Comey, there was alarm in the FBI, and there was an internal counterintelligence investigation. And again, there are numerous investigations of Mr. Trump uh, in various, including, and there's also um, civil suits uh, as well as criminal investigations around his business dealings and everything else. So there's national security components to this, there's business uh, commercial uh, components to this, but national security components focused specifically uh, was what we saw coming out of the FBI. And, and there are these kind of reports that have come out, according to Mr. McCabe, that, you know, that they were sufficiently concerned to be talking about speaking with and reaching out to members of cabinet around the possibility of the 25th amendment that caused some alarm for some um, legal scholars, including myself, because I think that the, you don't want to have the, no matter what the situation is, it's a bit alarming to imagine the FBI, which is effectively uh, Um, you know, a federal um, law enforcement agency, a federal police force, um, sort of leaning on cabinet ministers and anyone else to invoke the 25th Amendment, because you want to imagine that the political uh, arm is separate from the law enforcement arm um, of the state in in a democracy, right? So there's some concerns that maybe the FBI overstepped in that sense. But at the same time, I think it does reveal the degree of seriousness uh, with which those most uh, uh, um familiar with the facts uh and the more, and those who would be privy to any kind of surveillance that uh would be happening or would be required. Uh, had that this these discussions were going on. So I think just another sort of um, reason why the American public is entitled and the voters are entitled to have this uh, full information, and particularly Congress is entitled to have this full information, so they can make an assessment around the appropriateness of impeachment and should that decision be made, that, that there can be a proper trial on the Senate floor. And again, typically in past cases where presidents have been subject to impeachment proceedings, you know, whether it was, you know, Johnson presidency or, or Nixon resigning in advance thereof or in the Clinton case, it's not necessarily that you get a conviction on the Senate floor, but it's that the American public gets a full view of the evidence and it's ventilated in front of uh, everyone uh, rather than behind closed doors. So that's why I think having this move towards impeachment is desirable. But whether that's a likely outcome or not, it, you know, probably it, it still may not be.
1: Jeff, as always, thanks so much for your time. That's Jeffrey Myers, lawyer and lecturer up at TRU doing our weekly segment on U.S. and Canadian political news. And that's it for today's edition of The Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow.
0: Where the interior stays connected, this is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station, Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.